morning. My name is Paul Halley, and I'll be reading our scripture for the day, and it's from Acts 18, uh, verse 22 to Acts 19, verse 7. When Paul had landed in Caesarea, he went up to the greeting of the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scripture. He had even uh, instructed in the ways of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately and, these cons- and things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogues, but when uh, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those and through grace had, uh, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then? Were you baptized? He said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with, uh, with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Thank you, Paul. Good morning, everybody. Um, Paul, I never know how to pronounce that word, uh, the name of the city. Um, You said Phrygia, and, and that could be right, but I think that should be our name for where we live. Phrygia, because it's constantly frigid. Anyway, just an attempt. We can have our own spin on the Greek if we want. So, oh man. Thanks to the worship team for leading us this morning. It was awesome as always. It was, um, oh, we've even got some applause. This is all right. Good. Um, we gave, uh, Gus the weekend off because they were doing the, um, Steve Fodder show yesterday. Um, and so Gus's fingers are still bleeding from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra pieces that they rocked out. Doug Moore is somewhere in the room here. Uh, Doug, I guess, was lighting up the keyboards as well and stuff. So we, we needed things a little toned down today. We didn't know if they came in, what they would do to everything. So we said, why don't you just take the Sunday off? We'll, we'll handle it ourselves. So thank you guys for leading us in their absence. And um, So anyway. Uh, this is the time of year. If you're starting to drool a little bit, you're thinking about turkey and stuffing and all that stuff. At least I am. 
Um, but I am no chef. I am not the food preparer in the house. I can whip up a mean breakfast. I can um, not burn, um, you know, toasted sandwiches, or I can make pasta meat sauce pretty well, those kinds of things. I do that stuff all right. But I am not a chef. But I look forward to this time of year, as we all do, because you get to eat everybody's creations and the amount of time that goes to putting into all of it. And you can tell when something's missing. You can tell when something's not done, maybe like it was last year. Or if you're trying out a new tradition, you know, you're newly married or you've got your own new family traditions and you're making your own things or something. You'd be like, yeah, it's just not like the way my mom or my grandma made or something. We can tell when something's different, when something is missing, when there's an ingredient not included in what we're experiencing. That's a pretty lame and weak setup for our text that Paul just read for us. But if you noticed in both vignettes that are highlighted in our scripture text, there's something missing in each of those situations that the faithful, those that are walking after Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit are introducing these various vignettes to what the missing ingredient is. And so uh, that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit closer because the Holy Spirit's presence and even his absence is noticeable. Uh, when we who claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who claim to believe in God, when he's absent, it's noticeable. When he's moving, it's noticeable. And I get to varying degrees or stages. It's not like all of us are, and nor should we be ever always on the mountaintop, always experiencing what we think the move of the Holy Spirit is. And we know, of course, that we are are witnessing an era of the church which would want to express that if the Holy Spirit is present in your life, that it always feels this extremely emotional thing that is just kind of driving force in your life, that you just know he's there because you, what, feel it. That isn't really what the text is getting at, but at the same time, uh, it, it doesn't dismiss that as well. It's just that the Holy Spirit is bigger then we can comprehend he is more than we understand. And when he's not present, it's noticeable in various ways. And it certainly was to Paul, to um, Aquila and Priscilla, those that were witnessing what was going on around them. And the point that I want to make before we kind of dive back into the text is that followers of Christ... Rather than just saying that we're Christians, let's also define it as we are followers of Christ. We study his ways. We know who he is. We want to follow in step with him. Followers of Christ will desire to walk in the spirit. Whatever that means, as I'm on my biblical journey to understand who the Holy Spirit is and how he moves in my life, I can't, I can't claim to know all those things, but I want him. I want him to be present in my life. Rather than walking in the power of our own usness, our own flesh, as the scripture would define it. Paul would explain to the Galatian believers, he would encourage them in chapter 5 to walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's setting up a juxtaposition. There is flesh living and there's spirit living and the two do not mingle in God's economy. Because in verse 17, he says the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit and vice versa. The desires of the spirit against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things 
you want to do. That's a really interesting phrase because we always usually look at the, always usually. I'm such a waffler. Most of the time, let me just say it that way, most of the time we look at the list of things, and we'll see this before our time is done here this morning, you'll look at the list of the things that define the actions of the flesh, and we look at those things and we say, that's what I really want to do, I just can't, because God doesn't let me. Now, we don't really say that out loud, but we feel like that's what the Bible is saying, is what we really want to do, yeah, you really can't get to that stuff, you really shouldn't do that anymore. But, but Paul is indicating here in Galatians that there is a desire in the life of the believer who actually wants to live according to the spirit and desires that list more than the list of the flesh. It's that the list of the flesh keeps fighting. It's constantly present. It's what we wake up with facing every single day. So Paul wants us to see there's a battle going on here and that the desire of those that follow Christ really is to live more in the list of the things of the spirit. I know I keep referencing a list, but... This passage in Galatians continues, and we'll get to the second part of that before we're done. So in verse 18, it says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So in our text, what Paul is embarking on here is his third missionary journey. Paul would go on these excursions. It took a long time to travel in those days, and so his efforts were um, categorized in journeys. And you can find all kinds of maps sometimes in your study Bible show. This is the direction he went. This is how long it took him and that sort of thing. Paul was about being on the move and he was planting the seeds of a gospel foundation in so many places that he went to. And a lot of times you'll see that the things that started in a particular city, you'll be like, hey, I recognize that name. Often because there's a book in the New Testament named by that city because a church had started there. He got it off the ground or built its foundation and then later on would write to them and say, here are the things that I want to encourage you on. And that's what we have recorded for us as our, a majority of our New Testament scriptures. So here he is going out for a third time. And, and Luke is covering lots of territory in a few sentences. I like how when we are seeing in the reading uh, already, he said, you know, he went from one place to another. I like how nonspecific sometimes Luke is. He's like, it's really not the point of what I'm getting at, but you need to know he was uh, burning holes in his sandals. He was traveling quite a bit. But this journey, his stops along the way, the text told us that his purpose for doing it was to strengthen the believers. We saw this in verse 23. And this is really important for us to set out and understand because this goes hand in hand to strengthen the believers for us to become mature, for us to grow up in our faith. It needs to be fueled and powered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That that is who Jesus promised would come in his place. He said, it's actually better for me to go. He's telling all of his disciples who are weepy, who are kind of like, no, you can't leave yet. We just got started. You just conquered the grave. Let's get this thing done. And he says, it's better for me to go. If I go, I will send a comforter. And he can be everywhere at all times. He will live uh, in your hearts and he will move. He will illuminate the truth. He will empower you to live boldly for me. He says, better if I go, the comforter will come who will reveal all these things to you. You see, there's a, there's a connection between how we grow up in our faith and how we pass it on to other people. And so far, as we've seen so much in the book of Acts, we've been talking so much about evangelism or the going out, the spreading of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But Paul is going to these places. Yes, he's going to evangelize. Yes, he's going to share the truth. But he's concerned about the maturity of the saints. And I don't know if you've had this kind of experience, if you've been uh, maybe in a, in a church setting before where there was so much emphasis on, on sharing your faith and giving your testimony and evangelizing the people that are around you who don't know Jesus, that that becomes so overemphasized that sometimes we forget that there's the seed that's been planted in us that we need to have watered and nourished so that that grows up within us to maturity. So that yes, we're sharing who we, who we uh, have encountered and who has saved us from our sins, but they can actually see that it's transforming our life at the same time. And there's a lot more to acts than just about getting the message out. And then a few people going, yeah, sounds good. Let's follow. And it going nowhere from there. No, Paul went to strengthen the believers. He went to build them up into a maturity that would express itself as evangelism that would explode the uh, the gospel ministry in the region we're strengthened by the presence and the power of the holy spirit so let's take a look at these two case studies to see what it looks like when the spirit is obviously absent even despite both of these vignettes are positive this is not like we're looking at apollos and going like a poor guy is so misguided what a failure you know, or the, the, the uh, 12 disciples that we're going to see who eventually encounter the Holy Spirit, you know, that, oh man, they were, they were, you know, they meant well, but they were so far off the mark. No, these, these vignettes are shared in a positive light that they had so many things right, but it was obvious what was missing, the most important element, so crucial. So as I said, we find ourselves in this text in the city of Ephesus, which obviously connects to Ephesians, which, like I said, is a book of the Bible in our New Testament. And what's going on at Ephesus is you've got this, again, this kind of major bustling uh, city, very important to the Roman uh, uh, province of Asia. It's the capital. There's lots of trade happening. It's a gigantic harbor. And so there's a lot of business, a lot of income, a lot of uh, a focused attention on how people can make a buck or whatever it is they traded back then uh, because of their large harbor. But also almost equal to that aspect of the industry was the industry of idolatry. So the industry of idolatry. They have one of the seven wonders of the world in their city, the, the temple of Diana who was the fertility goddess, which meant they had all kinds of strange and bizarre worship practices that were mixed into. So if you said, I'm going to temple or something, there's a chance that you would engage in cultic prostitution, that they would have all kinds of things that you could spend your money on for idolatry and trinkets and all these kinds of things. It was big business. If we're being honest, we don't really have to look in the past to see that idolatry is still big business. And, and Christianity, every time it encountered idolatry, was terrible for business. Because the, the gospel would say you need to see who the one true God is, living and active, not captured in some little trinket or stone or some empty prayer to an unknown goddess who can't really come through and meet your needs and stuff. That, that Christianity would point people to a living Savior. And we saw it when the slave girl who was demon-possessed uh, demon and, and the, the apostles came in and freed her from that under the power of the Holy Spirit. And they said, hey, you're messing with our income here. We had this girl in chains so she could prophesy and predict and we could make a few bucks. And now you're coming and you're messing with all of that. See, idolatry is always counter-opposed to the gospel because the gospel 
gives us freedom in Christ and idolatry always continues to enslave us deeper and deeper and deeper. I don't need to make the obvious connections of how idolatry in our day and age costs money. It is big business. And yet it continues to enslave rather than free. So this is what's going on in Ephesus. Paul is going to need to spend several years to build a foothold, to strengthen a church, to encourage the believers. But before he gets to that, he's got some other traveling he's going to do. There's some commitments that he made. And uh, we won't get into all of those um, details. You can see some of that in, uh, referenced in the earlier part of the text before we got into, I think, uh, 22. But Paul has some journey he has left to do. So his faithful partners, Priscilla and Aquila, who we heard about last week in Pastor Tom's message, which was kind of mind-blowing. Tell you what, these guys keep pushing me. Anyway, um, you know, that well, we got introduced to Priscilla and Aquila, and Paul says, you guys are the mature, faithful partners. I want you to stay in Ephesus. I've got journeying I'm still going to do, but stay here. Paul spent some time in the synagogues as he would always do. He started laying a, a foothold for the uh, seed that needed to be planted. But he said, I trust you guys to look for opportunity to see what's going on. And they were the ones that spotted Apollos. They saw this man who was coming into the, um, the situation and speaking with a lot of impact. And they said, well, let's pay attention to what's happening here. But what Paul, Apollos is going to reveal for us here is the first point, which is that talent as great as it is or as useful as it can be, is still no substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. We get a great description of who Apollos was in his natural state, or as the scriptures would say, in his flesh. Who is the man Apollos? Well, he's a native of one of the great educational centers of the day in Alexandria, Egypt, kind of a a rival to the uh, city of Athens that we studied a few weeks back. They had the biggest library in the world. They prided themselves on education. There was a, a great Jewish population there. So there was a lot of that informing of God's plans of the Old Testament scriptures and things, what they would have called then the Hebrew Bible. And so Apollos is coming locked and loaded from an educational environment. This guy is sharp and he is loaded to the hilt with all of the um, knowledge that one would ever want. So we get that early description of him, but it also says he knew how to speak it. He was eloquent. He was skilled in uh, perhaps debate practices or presentation techniques. We know that Aristotle's rhetoric education was big at that time. And so most likely he's a student there. He knows how to share things compellingly and convincingly. And then you mix that with the fact that he was competent in the scriptures And then it says that he was fervent in spirit. What does that mean? Apollos is one who is loaded with education. Now think about it. We have, I was having some conversation with students last night. It's like there's one thing to know a bunch. There's another thing to not be able to communicate it, right? It's the part of our conversation. That there are some times where it's like, wow, I really wish I could pay attention to everything this person was saying. They obviously have a lot to teach me, but it's so boring. It's killing me. And that happens. Apparently, this was not Apollos' Achilles heel. He was not only loaded with the smarts, but he was compelling in his speech, and he drew an audience. And people wanted to know what he knew, and they wanted to hear it from his own mouth. It's an incredible mixture of gifts. It's an incredible talent that God can use for his own purposes. 
And it sounds as though as he already was. It says that he had limited knowledge of Jesus Christ. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. No doubt he knew who Jesus was. As we see a little bit later, it says that he's a student of or a disciple of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was always pointing towards Jesus. So he knew something about Jesus and he was wise enough to stay in his lane. He was like, I don't know everything. And there was a bunch he didn't even know he didn't know that he'll find out. But the scripture said the one thing we can say about him is he taught accurately the things of Jesus. He stayed in his lane. This is an important point for us to camp on for a second because inevitably whenever the church goes to teach its people how to share their faith or to engage in a culture that so desperately is hungry for the truth of the gospel, the very first thing that almost everybody says is, I don't think I know enough to be able to do that. We always limit, we always look down on what it is we bring to the table when it comes to the Lord's work. When we're around holiness and perfection, all these things that we get glimpses of in the scriptures and all that, that we know exists because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we know we don't measure up. Or we don't feel like, I'm not a perfect enough vessel. I had that angry thought about my Aunt Ruth the other day. God can't use me to, if any of you have an Aunt Ruth or are an Aunt Ruth, I do apologize for that illustration. She's really not worth being mad at. Don't have that angry thought over her. It's not worth it. But the reality is that we limit, we look down on what it is we bring to the table. Now, Apollos, of course, is gifted. Anybody that wants to be in that realm of things would say, that's the kind of guy I'd like to be. But even with that, he knew I can be used of the Lord and give my gifts over to him. And God still made amazing things happen. Yet with all of that, there was still something missing. It says that he knew only John's baptism. I'm just going to admit that there's a lot in this text that we could spend a lot of time trying to parse out and figure out what all these variations mean. There's a lot of theological discussion and debate that can happen in a text like this because we're trying to figure out what are the limitations of only knowing John's baptism? Why is somebody getting re-baptized in the name of Jesus? And what does that mean for us today? And what I want to caution us is to remember that Acts is an unfolding narrative of things that are happening on the ground. We're getting it basically in real time. And there is a unique era that's happening in Acts. And my caution to many in the church is not to make normative things that are descriptive. What I'm getting at here is that we often make our theology and regular day practices normal based on what we see happening in a moment of time rather than taking the time to figure out, is that really for us today? Is that what it's trying to explain? What I would caution us to do is to look at it and say, what is clearly stated for us is biblical principle that can be backed up in other parts of the scripture we use and we take it to the bank other parts that are explaining how things happen but we're a little bit ambiguous we're not quite sure what it means for us today let's not hold on to that too too tightly so there's a lot of that mystery that's happening in this text so we'll spend a little bit of time trying to explain that but i don't think that's really what luke is even emphasizing here i think he's emphasizing the fact that when the spirit isn't present god's work does not completely get done and that's where i want us to keep our eyes on today but but apollos knew only john's baptism like we said he probably knew who jesus was didn't know all that was going to happen didn't know how the the road had ended or even how it had restarted as we'll talk about here is the story of christ 
But John's ministry, as we know, was as the cousin of Jesus. It was prophesied. There was a whole miraculous event that happened right around the uh, right, right around the same time that was happening to Mary, and it's all this really cool stuff with Elizabeth and John in her womb, and all these things. It's really amazing. But John's ministry handpicked. You will be the one to point to the coming of the Messiah. The time has finally arrived. He's on the scene and you're going to be the one to point him out and say, that's what he looks like. He's right there. Not speaking in generalities like the time of the kingdom is about to come and all these things. They've been hearing those prophecies all along. John's um, uh, specific calling and role was just say, there he is. That's what he looks like. He has a face. He walks in those sandals. He just walked past us. That's what John's job was, to call people to say, it is now time. You need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Savior of the world has come to pay the penalty of our sins, and that's what he looks like right there. Now, because John was set aside uniquely to do one particular thing, there were some quirks about John. You may have read that he was like one of these, a little bit of a social outcast. He ate um, pretty gross um, food that would get caught in his you know, crazy beard and all these sorts of like. He was uniquely handpicked to do one thing, to point the way of the Messiah coming. And it made him a bit of an eccentric. But it was effective and thousands and thousands and thousands of people were baptized in John's baptism, not in the name of John, not as John as the Savior. He had refuted that. He said, it's not me. I'm pointing to the one to come. But they were baptized in a baptism of repentance, knowing the Savior is lurking about somewhere. He's walking this ground somewhere. Some have said they've caught a glimpse of him. And then they would go off excited that the kingdom has arrived and they would maybe migrate or spread the word and they would take off and they didn't hear how the story continued. And the further away you get from the center of all that activity, the news may have, it's not like we have TikTok now that we could hear these things in a, in a split second, that the news hadn't gotten to them, that the, the savior was identified, that he did march down that road, that they did take his life, but he beat death, proving that he could pay for our sin. All of that information hadn't quite made it to the great Apollo, strangely enough. A few weeks ago, um, Pastor Tom and I were going to a conference down in um, in the southern part of New England. And uh, we took my car and we were uh, trying to find our exits in Connecticut and that sort of thing. And so I'm using my GPS in my truck and it's a 2019. So it's a few years old. And as you know, if you're using a system that's a little bit outdated or something, when you get down to those busier centers and stuff, they have a tendency to move exits on you. They just jump them on the other side of the highway. So your screen is saying, get ready to turn right. So you're doing this. And then it's like four lanes over. It's like, nope, we're going off the left, right? And so uh, we started running into that. And it was like, okay, try not to get hit and get in an accident the first time. But the second time when we'd get out, we would know, okay, we can't fully trust the screen. It doesn't have all the latest information. So there's some course correction we have to take on ourselves. But it, what's helpful is that somebody else provided a sign for us. That if we just say, okay, this sign right here isn't the most clear for us to follow. So we're going to have to look for the ones that have been updated and tell us which way to go. And things got much um, uh, easier from that point on. And Pastor Tom wasn't throwing up in the other seat as much as he was the first time down. 
This is what Apollos is dealing with. He's dealing with a GPS system that isn't wrong in the sense that it isn't still trying to get you to a destination. It just doesn't have all the pieces figured out. It doesn't have all of the explanation that you need. So you have to look to the more revealed uh, 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 modern signage that's around you to get you to the right place. Not a perfect illustration because when we believe that the scriptures, there's no correction that needs to be done, just clarification. But still, this is a bit of what Apollos is experiencing. He needed his GPS updated. There were new roads available to him. He was starting to hear from Priscilla and Aquila. This is what it says in verse 26. He was still speaking boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. And they explained to him the way of God more accurately. They didn't clean his clock. They didn't tell him, you got to throw all this stuff out. They were like, here, we've got some accurate updated information. We've got a, a download for you. Plug in here and get this download and figure out what's really been missing. Many would speculate that this is when he was able to receive Christ as Savior. I am not going to parse that out. I'm not a theologian. But the change had happened for sure after he had heard this. And immediately responded in an incredible way that now that he gets the complete picture and he can be in the name of Christ because now he knows who he is and what he's done, it changed everything. But I don't want to skip too quickly past Priscilla and Aquila. I think there's a a bit of a rabbit trail here that we can take that's helpful. I think it's incredible to think of these two as this power couple, not not showy, not like uh, we hear so many times it happens in churches where you've got power people on the board of elders or something, and they're the old dinosaurs, and you can't change anything. They like that carpet, that color, and it's been that way for 40 years, and if you want anything done in that church, you've got to go through this person or that couple or something like that. This is not who Priscilla and Aquila were. We see this, we have it evidenced in the fact that Paul trusted them, that there was life that surrounds them. People that of the that I just described, there isn't life around them. That stifles and kills and crushes what God wants to do in ministry. But for them, they were breeding life all around them. And they did it together as a team. I was thinking about this this week and I'm like, man, if I wanted to just single out some of the couples here at Faith and say, that's who I see as a Priscilla and Aquila, my list just kept getting longer and longer and longer. It's an incredible blessing. Not that everyone is in the position of being able to serve in ministry with their spouse or even to have a spouse, which we understand. And the Lord does incredible, amazing things there as well. But what an amazing thing to have that as a foundation that both husband and wife understand the opportunities that the Lord has for them, understand their own resources and the fact that they might be able to do some of that together only empowers that even more. We're always saying when we bring on somebody in staff, uh, you know, our pastors and others and stuff, and we say, look, we're not getting a two for one here. We're not hiring you so that we can also squeeze the life out of your spouse. And so that we have, that person has to be as involved as committed, you know, that kind of thing. But inevitably what happens is that person, because their marriage is whole, uh, wholesome and healthy and stuff, they want to serve together. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell you, you can't, if I'm getting a freebie here, Sure. Um, but it ends up being this beautiful thing where at various stages, depending on age of children and availability and workloads and all that kind of stuff, it varies, but there's no expectation. But yet the end result usually turns out to be something of a partnership in service, which is amazing. I remember in my early years, I had graduated Bible college and we were serving in a 
a small church in the in the Boston area in the city of Cambridge. And, um, you know, there wasn't means to take me on as a, as an additional pastor. They had one pastor and he was just barely employed there and stuff, but we were planting something and seeing it grow and it was exciting to be a part of. But it was always my dream and desire to go work for a church somewhere, to be able to say see you to the day job and just do this kind of all the time, you know. And so that's what I had prepared for and that's what I was waiting for. And I naively or somewhat say arrogantly thought that those things would just come calling. That they would know where I am and they would go and seek me out and let me know, we have just the spot for you. Well, that wasn't happening until one day it did. And uh, some uh, contacts of contacts said, oh, you should go kind of meet Brent or something like that. They had, there was a church in the Philadelphia area or in Pennsylvania somewhere that had a position open and they came up to Boston to interview us and see us interact in this little upstart church and all these kinds of things. And then the conversation became quickly one of these things of like rolling out the red carpet and what do you need for a salary? And I said, I think I need to be here. And I remember him saying, Chris, I remember going, no problem. We could knock that out of the park. You know, it was just kind of like, these things really happen. These conversations happen. Like, you know, and, but as they were describing all of the, what I would consider all the um, perks and the sort of the glories that come with finally being, and they're finally recognizing me. Oh, they've come to find me. I'm 20, 23 years old, 24 years old. I'm going to be the savior of Pennsylvania, right? And, um, and I'm just like buying all of the, but what my wife was hearing, because they were also saying, oh yeah, and then we'll need you guys to be at conferences and retreats and everything. We're sitting there with a little infant, our firstborn. We're like, oh, don't worry. We got a babysitter for you. And they were just starting to like saying like, basically we're, we're getting the two for one out of you guys. And, uh, whatever you think you're going to be able to do in ministry or something like that or whatever, you know, this is, we need you both locked in for the long term, and we need kind of, and they were spelling out all this commitment again. I'm young. I'm ready. I'm like, sure. Fine. Checking off all the boxes. She's going, can we have a family here for a minute? And, uh, and, and I'll be honest with you, I really wrestled with her hesitation. I got her permission to share this story, by the way. I wrestled with her hesitation because, of course, I'm going, well, this is God's calling and you're stifling God's will in our life. That's how I looked at it. She was looking at this going, I don't think they're going to be building us up. I don't think that they're providing us a situation where we can actually be better for them by improving our family, being more available fine, whatever. Okay, fine. We'll tell them no, you know, the Lord had to do a real work in my heart to understand that God speaks to her as much as he does me. Uh, just because I'm supposedly the man with the calling doesn't mean I'm seeing, I was bought into all the other stuff. We knew the guy that ended up taking the job just to finish the story off. And I think it was maybe a year later, something like that year or two later, burnt out, fizzled out, marriage dissolved everything. So then I was like, okay, God, you're speaking to her too. So much more important for us to find the thing that we can do together as opposed to getting pulled in all these different directions. And this is what God wants to do. I I use this to not to compare us to Priscilla or Aquila, but I'm saying this is what you want to find in your ministry is, Lord, what are you leading us to do? And I see so often, I see one spouse carrying all the spiritual weight, all the spiritual load, all trying to get it all done, trying to be faithful to church. And the other person's like, ah, take it or leave it. Maybe you'll get me, maybe you won't. It's incredible when two people team up together and spend their lives because it builds something in them. 
Not out of compulsion, not out of demand, but out of opportunity. And, and these two were in a position to be handpicked by Paul. Sounds like they had some resources and some means that they could up and leave what they were doing where they were and then travel to Ephesus and be counted on to spend some time there. But I also love how they had wisdom to act. Do you notice they didn't stand up in the, in the synagogue and say, ah, Paulus, I, you're missing a few details here. There's the rest of the story you haven't heard yet. What does the scripture say? Pull them aside. This wasn't an ego trip for them. They didn't need to be heard. They just wanted whatever Paulus brought to the table with his power and impact to be fueled by better information and to encounter the power of the Holy Spirit. They dared to intervene, but they did it with class and with tact because they had the humility to promote Apollos. They weren't territorial. They were recognizing that, hey, a weapon like Apollos for the kingdom is a good thing. Let's build him up. Let's see if we can prop him up to be more useful. And I think credit to Apollos for having the humility to receive the instruction. I think this is a really different kind of guy. I don't think he's the typical all ducks are in a row. And so there's an air of arrogancy and stuff. Even some have speculated. I think Martin Luther is the one to begin this, that he might be the author of Hebrews. We know it's one of the great mysteries of who wrote the book of Hebrews. It really reads in some ways like something Paul would write, but he didn't do his typical, this is from the hand of Paul thing. Wouldn't it be like somebody as educated and as sharp as somebody like Paul to not put his signature on it because of the humility that this man walked in? It's possible. Not here to stir debate. You can go check it out for yourself. All right. That's Apollos in the flesh. I thought this would be a quick sermon. I only had three pages. I'm going to fly through this. We're going to move. Apollos now encountering the spirit. Who does he encounter? He encounters the third person of the triune Godhead. Isn't that a fun mouthful? Who's the Holy Spirit? He's the third person of the triune Godhead. Sounds so, but it's more practical than that. I'm going to just quote from our statement of faith, both here at faith and then our, our organization that we belong to, our uh, free church, Evangelical Free Church of America. In the article of who is the Holy Spirit, it says that we believe that the Holy Spirit and all that he does glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He convicts the world of its guilt. He regenerates sinners. And in him, they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. He also, as if that isn't enough, what an incredible list, all that we have secured in us from the Holy Spirit. He also indwells. He's present with us. He illuminates. He sheds light on truth and illuminates our path so that we know which way to go. He guides us, equips and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. We have seen the Holy Spirit get introduced in the book of Acts in various important uh, epics, always surrounding a change in the the, uh, people dynamic or the human culture or what's going on there, like in the people groups. In Acts 2, it was to show that this salvation had come to the Jews. In Acts 8, it was to show that the salvation had come to the Samaritans, who they used to tease and pick on, calling them half-breeds. In Acts 10, it was to show that this salvation isn't only a Jewish thing now, it's also for the Gentiles, those who are outside of that Jewish faith. And now in Acts 19, which will be the final mention of the arrival of tongues as a gift of the Holy Spirit, this obvious presence that the Spirit has come, it's for these dispersed Jews and those that were spread about and saying like, he is now on the move beyond all the regions, that the Holy Spirit is universal. 
So in these key moments, we see these dramatic introductions to who the Holy Spirit is. And even today, I believe that often we boil his work and his ministry down to just the mysterious and the miraculous, the things that are like, ooh, that's really, quote unquote, spiritual. But all the things that we mentioned that his office affords us and all that he does in us, uh, all is attributed to who he is. Yet the chief act of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're wondering, do I have the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Do you bring glory in your actions, in your words, in your thoughts and stuff? Do you aim to bring glory to Jesus Christ? Because if you do, that is not a natural thing. That is not a human thing. When you see Jesus for who he is, the natural person would resist that and say, ah, that's too much Lord going on, too much expectation, too much invasion. But if your life is to say, I love Christ and I want to exalt Jesus and make him more famous than me and anybody else and things, that would be an indication that the spirit has led you to that conclusion because that's what he does. So now God is infusing the talent of Apollos with the spirit to make all that he offers really come alive. And at the end of verse 27, it says, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. How could God infuse your offering? You say, well, I I know this, or I've developed this skill or I have this kind of born in talent or I have this interest that's turned into X, Y, and Z. How could God infuse you're offering whatever it is. Too quickly, we separate the secular from the sacred. We say, well, what I do with my hands or my mind or my time or with my heart or emotions or something, that, that isn't the stuff that God uses. God uses the things of like, um, I'm always teasing, calling myself a man of the cloth because that image of like the robes and all that sort of stuff and everything, that's the sacred stuff. That's what God wants to do in the sacred world. But what I do on a Tuesday morning at the job site, that doesn't belong to the Lord. It might surprise you to know that it all does. That God doesn't separate the secular from the sacred. He brings the sacred into the secular. This is what we see going on so much with those that are surrounding Apollos. Let me make the second point and try to move through it a little bit quicker here. Um, Pretty soon, if you see the students down front doing the wave, we agreed last night that that would be their cue that I'm running out of time. So I'm always amazed that they stay awake. They have so much. And you are awake, aren't you? All right, um, they have so much on their plate with studying and things, and I give them a pass. All right, second point, sincerity is no substitute for the presence of the Holy Spirit, not even our sincerity. As important and helpful and great as it is, it isn't a substitute. So let's go back into chapter 19. It happened that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. And he's thinking, yeah, I could tell. That's why I asked the question. Doesn't seem to be here. They said, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Again, it's not so much that there are these rebels or they're not trying hard or something. He's like, something's missing. I'm spending the time with you, having the conversations with you. There's something about you or something not about you that is pointing me towards believing that the Holy Spirit has arrived in power and in fullness for you. They said, no, we didn't even hear that there was. 
They were disciples in the flesh. They were followers of something and someone, and they were trying to put the pieces of the map together, but there was something missing. Again, we've got students of John the Baptist. Are they sincere searchers or are they incomplete followers? I'm not exactly sure. I tried thinking I could land the plane on that this week. I can't quite tell. But the question was, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we didn't even know he existed. Not, I shouldn't say it that way. I'm pretty certain they knew the Holy Spirit existed. It's not just a new concept. It was taught in Judaism. I'm I'm sure it was explained, but in terms of like, we didn't even know what he was about or what he did or how he moved. That's, that's the part's a mystery to us. So he says to them, then in what were you baptized? They said, well, into John's baptism, you know, that baptism of repentance, kingdom is at hand. The savior is amongst us. So we were like, okay, we're all in. We're there for that. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, which you've ascribed to, but, but he was baptizing them, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after this. That is Jesus. And they're like, this sounds familiar. Starting to come together now. That's right. He was pointing to, he had a name, he had a face. He was here. Yeah. Maybe we've emphasized John's baptism in repentance and we didn't quite emphasize Christ in the center of all this. Jesus being the Christ from Nazareth. But this is what we see as a pattern of God's work as we believe. I'm going to just jump us back real quick to Acts chapter 10. We spent some time there weeks and weeks ago. In, in verses 43 and 44, it says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Believes in who? Believes in Jesus. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. What we see is that as sinners which are all of us, as sinners hear the word of God, it sinks into our souls, at least into a willing heart. Then sinners then respond to that with belief that he is the one he claims to be, that he is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. He has died and rose again for my sins personally. Again, this would be a piece that they were missing. Remember the disciples didn't even get it. Jesus is being dragged and crucified. And they're like, oh yeah, he said something like this would happen. They didn't even figure it out. How much less these guys who have been scattered about, who had only heard what John the Baptist was saying, they weren't going to put all these pieces together. Now they're hearing it come to conclusion. Like we're in, we believe this. Jesus is the one. We're so glad to hear the updated news. Their GPS was getting updated in a split second. It was all happening. And then what happens at the moment that that happens, the spirit indwells the believer. I just want to say that often the text that we've been studying has been looked to um, by other believers who would say there's a second, what they call the second blessing of the Holy Spirit comes. You know, it's like, well, do you have the Holy Spirit? Well, not enough. Well, let's pray for that and give you more. That's really not what the text is getting at here. There's a lot to be said about the ambiguity of these guys' faith and their understanding. But when they heard that Jesus was who Jesus was, they said, we receive him in all his fullness. And that's when they receive the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a matter of, ah, your antenna's broken. We need to fix that or anything. They just didn't know the complete picture. That's what they buy into. And that's where they uh, uh, receive the Holy Spirit. Now they're disciples in the spirit, which shows us all kinds of indications that we're familiar with. Verse five, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And again, very demonstrably, visibly, they began speaking in tongues. They were prophesying all the marks that we had seen come the three iterations before. 
what is it for us? I, I want to finish by looking at a chart. Were we able to find that chart um, for the thing? So I just want us to look at, I was looking at the Galatians 5 passage and I was seeing these long lists and I was like, I want to see these two things uh, next to each other a little bit. In Galatians 5, it says the, the works of the flesh, what we produce on our own, are all these things on the left. Hopefully the text isn't too small, but you've got all kinds of the immoralities, impurities, idolatries, jealousy, all these things that we often say that, yep, I keep falling into these things. Maybe not the worst expressions of them, but various uh, elements of them. You might look at some of the things on this list and go, phew, I'm not guilty of all that. But what Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount is that as what happens in our hearts is as, as bad, if not worse, than even what we express on the outside in terms of our standing before the Lord. So a lot of these things are things that we would say, yeah, I, I at least am sowing the seeds towards a lot of them. But many of them we live out in full expression. So our flesh is this weighty, I mean, encumbering, uh, um, enslaving aspect of things that we just feel plagued by so often. And on the right side, the list of the spirit, the things of the spirit look like all these very wholesome and and, and freeing and life-giving thing. And yet the list is so short. It has so much power in such a short list. And yet we give ourselves so much to this lengthy list of, of dead ends and heartbreak And I think what Paul is getting at in this Galatians 5 passage is that the spirit lightens. This is what Jesus said, come follow me and you will find rest for your souls because my workload that you have to do is lighter for you. It's lighter than what you've been carrying. But as we always like to do when we're talking about cultural differences and the, the world in which we live in and stuff, which list is always being hyped as if you want to be free, you should be free to do it's always that stuff. It's always, if you want to express your freedom, you can engage in any of this as much as you want. You do you. You feel good about yourself. You don't answer to anybody. And they say, that's where freedom is found. And yet what we find is that it's always this enslaving, puts the shackles on, and it's a dead end in all these things. Paul is saying that the life that we can be uh, living and the one that's freeing for us is the life of the Spirit. We all recognize at some degree that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is better for us. It's better for the world around us, makes more friends. All those things are obvious to us, but we often seldom desire to live in that side of things because we feel like our desires are driving us over here all the time. I, I think what Paul is getting at here and what Priscilla and Aquila have noticed is that when the spirit isn't present, those desires are on full display in one direction or the other. As you and I allow for the spirit to have more reign and control in our life and have more moving in our life, others around us will say they desire. I'm not saying they're always perfect at it. They're not always great at it, but they want to be people of joy. They want to be people of life. They want to be people of gentleness and patience and all these other things. They don't seem to want to stay in the camp of all the things that our flesh produces. They seem to recognize that those things are enslaving and that the Lord has better for us. Is there something missing in your life? As people spend time around you, would they like, would they like Paul say, hey, is something missing here? Or would they say, you know, there's really the Lord's, 
active and alive in this person's life. Maybe you're weary from living in the limited power of your flesh. You've been relying on some very good things. Maybe you have some talent or maybe you're a sincere individual. Like these uh, vignettes indicate, but wouldn't it be better to walk in the freedom of the spirit? Let God do something, whatever he wants to do with that talent, sincerity, however he wants to make it his own. Just yield that to him and say, it's not what I'm banking in. It's not what I'm resting in. Let's remember that this is not an act of trying harder to be spiritual. You ever find yourself like this? I I do all the time. It's like I see that list of what, and I'm like, okay, so I got to work harder at being gentle. How's that square? I got to be, I got to get hard, work harder at being joyful. Add up. These are things that seem really hard to force production of. But a surrendered heart is one that allows the Lord to, to, to mold us and make us, and we become those things as a result of his uh, interaction with us. This is applying the power of the perfect Christ in our life through surrender. He's not saying be perfect on your own. He says be perfect as I am perfect. In other words, be perfect because I am, and I can be your perfection in your life. Life is in the spirit is lighter, it's obvious, it's present. Do not think that I'm saying that we will always have good days, that we will always be laughing instead of crying or anything. Those are all external things that we have a tendency to attribute to the spirit, but the reality is, is the spirit builds within us something last or something that some longer lasting that looks more like joy and not just temporary happiness. Would you please stand and let's pray about these things. Well, Lord, thank you so much for giving us your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the examples that you have in the scripture. We continue to look into, we peek into the lives of those that you've used greatly, like, of course, Paul. And even Apollos, as we would see in other portions of the scripture, was an incredibly effective servant of yours. But even the quieter ones, like Priscilla and Aquila and those who are faithful and uh, just doing what the spirit was leading them to do. And even these newfound disciples, we just see, Lord, that this hunger resulted in something that was more than they could ever ask or think. So I pray, Lord, that you would develop and and build in us, increase in us that desire to know you more. To to lift you up, God, in all the things that you're doing in our lives. Help us, Lord, to surrender to the gentle voice of your spirit this morning. Prepare us to lift up our own voices in the praise and the exaltation of the Son of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.